Chapter 21, that's the fourth gospel and the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Go to the very end of John, and we're going to look at verses 15 to 19. John 21, 15 to 19. Second installment on the series we're starting on 1 Peter. We will, in fact, get into 1 Peter next week. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk around wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you were stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I am a clean windshield junkie. I love to have my windshield clean on my car. I should have invested in Windex a long time ago. Anybody identify? How do you know your windshield is really clean? There's only one way. You have to turn your windshield right into the sun. And only in the light of the sun's purifying light can you see the smudges, the imperfections, all the dirt that's still on your windshield. Jesus' desire for you is that you would keep clean the windshield of your heart from anything that would hinder your adoring affection and sight of him. He would have you see him clearly. In the process of him exposing to us those things that shroud our vision of him, that we might not love him as he is worthy, love him the way we're created, that process is called repentance. He wants you to see that your sin is often more pleasurable to you than he is. That's essentially what Jesus is doing with Peter. He's leading Peter in repentance. If you know Peter's story, you may remember that the night Jesus was arrested, Peter was there publicly in the courtyard when Jesus was being interrogated, and he denied 
his master, Jesus, three times by the light of a fire. Here we are again by a second fire in the morning on the beach. Peter is restoring, excuse me, Jesus is restoring Peter publicly as a gift of his grace. I think Peter started the day, just another day, let's go fishing. This is a new day for Jesus and Peter. Jesus will establish Peter for a lifetime of ministry, and he will do so leading Peter in the grace of repentance. What do we learn about repentance? Number one, Jesus' mercy leads us to repentance. Notice after breakfast, it isn't Peter that initiates this. It is Jesus. It's pure mercy. Peter has not earned this. Peter does not deserve this. Peter is not getting what he deserves for his treasonous betrayal of Jesus. He, he deserved the death penalty for the way he treated his, his master Jesus on that awful night. He denied him three times. Jesus wants Peter restored. Just as Jesus wants nothing hindering your sight and enjoyment of Jesus himself. He longs for fellowship with you. Anything hindering that fellowship must be brought down from the windshield of your heart. No wonder Paul writes in Romans 2, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. If you've ever repented in your life, if you repented yesterday, if you do some repenting today, it is the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the sovereign action of God sending a spirit to do in our hearts what brings greater sight and enjoyment and adoration of Jesus. It's grace, grace, God's initiative. Love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. God is the one. God is the one who was shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you can say or you want to say, I want to see that glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, well, God will shine that light in your heart. He's the only one that can. You can't do it on your own. So you may be thinking, why is it that grace must initiate this process? For the same reason that you can get by driving without a super clean windshield. You can get by. You just need gas in the tank to move your car. We, we tolerate, some of us, a lot of dirt on the windshield of our hearts. Meaning we tolerate a lot of life with little sight of God's glory. Can I prove it to you? How many of us woke up this week, any day, begging God for greater sight of his glory. It's the first thing you did. How many of us begged God for greater sight of his glory? We tolerate a lot of gunk on the windshield of our hearts. Let me be specific about some of the fogs that lie over your heart. There's the fog of God is distant. He's unimportant. Kids, 
making a living, survival, they're more important than God. God's distant. Then there's the fog of disappointing God. You have this sense in the past, you profoundly disappointed God, and we never sort of run a run to those we, we've left down. There's a fog of you've disappointed God. There's the fog of many distractions. You're consumed with your appearance, your reputation, approval. And then there's the fog of disillusionment. God let you down. You're just as content to not see him. The result is you stagnate spiritually. And you're hurting. And you're soothing that pain in ways that is self-destructive. Do you know that? Number two, excuse me, guys, <coughs> what do we know about repentance? Number two, it requires painful self-discovery. Notice Jesus presses Peter three times. Same question. What's the question? Do you love me? Three times in that courtyard, he denied, he even knew Jesus. Three times, do you love me? Wouldn't once be enough? Not for most of us. We naturally don't want to deal with our sin until it's really pressed upon us. Obviously, Jesus is forcing Peter to relive the pain of denying him three times. He wants Peter to see his sin until it hurts. Same for you and me. In fact, in verse 17, where it says, Peter was grieved that Jesus asked him a third time, that word grieved was used of grieving over someone's death. Do you think Jesus was wanting Peter to grieve that his sins caused Jesus' death? Possibly. But it could also be that Jesus wants Peter to die to a vision of himself that he's basically a decent guy. A lot of us have a self-fashioned picture of our own goodness. We're pretty good folk. In fact, if you were raised in a decent home and went to good schools and you were able to get a good job, you probably have an assessment of yourself that you're pretty together. It's actually one of the things I, I, I wrestle often when I put a suit on on a Sunday morning. Because I look together, don't I? You know, maybe from here down. And I'm not. I'm a freaking mess as a man. I'm a mess. Appearances are deceitful, but we get this idea that we're... Paul explains, come to my class on Romans, Paul explains in Romans 7... He says, when the law came, I died. What does he mean? He means that this pharisaical, self-righteous picture he had of himself as a really good person was shattered when the law of God finally got his heart. And what commandment was it that changed his estimation of himself? You shall not covet. Because it's in that command that we realize we love things more than God because we are fundamentally dissatisfied with God himself. And that's the beginning of an effective repentance. Being ruthless. Ruthless. Let's tease that a little bit. Ruthless about yourself. Do you see yourself as helpless of any spiritual good and glory in and of yourself? Isn't it interesting how Jesus addresses Peter? 
Did you notice? He says, Simon, son of John. Now, if you know your Bible, that is revisionist history. When Jesus first called Peter, indeed, Peter was Peter, Simon, son of John. But then there is a point, Jesus changed his name. It's Caesarea Philippi. It's recorded in Matthew 16. Jesus, uh, Peter confessed Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus says, I'm changing your name from Simon Pebble to Petros, rock. Peter was the rock, but he calls him Simon, son of John now. What's he saying? You might have thought you were a rock. You were acting like a mere man. Peter, frail, weak, bound by self-interest, self-protection, self-absorption, and self-trust. Think of the specific sins that sprung out of that heart of self-protection and self-trust. I'm thinking of Peter's fear when he stepped out of the boat. He saw Jesus. And let me come to you, Jesus. Okay, come on. Stepped out of the boat. And he saw the wind and the waves, and he he became afraid Fear will grip your heart if you're a fundamentally a self-trusting person. I think of Peter's pride. These little discussions the disciples had on the side. Which one of you do you think is the greatest? And everyone's thinking, you're going to say, I am. The pride. How about Peter's self-confidence? Peter's the one, when Jesus is being arrested, that draws the sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest's ear. Peter's the one taking matters into his own strong hands. Or Peter's man-made solutions to profound problems. When Jesus says to Peter, I am going to go to the cross and die for you, Peter says, no, you're not. Because his heart is in the grip of human answers to deeply spiritual problems. Be ruthless about yourself. Be ruthless within yourself. Stop blame shifting. Your wife isn't your problem. Your kids aren't your problem. Your boss isn't ultimately your problem. It's your pride and your lack of faith. I know how easy it is for me to construct a little world where I am justified and everybody else should get the blame. There's only one power in the world to bring that uh, picture crashing down. That's the power of the knowledge of God's holiness. New knowledge of God brings new knowledge of self. And you get that through heavy doses of the word of God. Exposure to the holiness of God. The character of God. The righteousness of God. The purity of God. You and I need heavy doses of that to see ourselves rightly and be ruthless in yourself. Shouldn't there be grief when we realize we love things more than we love Jesus? And that's Jesus' question. Do you love me? That strikes at the heart of sin, loving anything more than Jesus. So why do you and I love things more than we love the Lord? Why do we? Why do we love power? Control, approval, being right, comfort, pleasure, leisure, competence, sensuality. Why do you love those more than the Lord? Because of what they do for you. They give you satisfaction. They give you significance. They give you security. They do something for your soul. And I love being confronted in Proverbs 
You know that I read the chapter of Proverbs daily that corresponds with the day of the month. I love being confronted with this phrase in Proverbs 3 and then again in 8. Nothing I desire compares with you. I, I get that reminder at least tw twice a month, which I need every day. That the things I desire, they don't compare to Jesus. Therefore, I'm deeply in need of seeing, seeing Jesus more and more clearly. Lest the things of this world captivate, capture my heart's imagination. Third thing we want to see about repentance. You should repent over sin, not its consequences. Now, let me be clear about this. If you've sinned against someone, you need to deal with the consequences. You need to ask their forgiveness. If I break the windshield wipers on your car, I need to replace them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what happens internally. Much of our repentance is over sorrow of what sin how it made me feel bad about myself, not how it grieved a holy God. See, it's one thing to lament the mess you got yourself into, quite another to deeply grieve over offending God. So Jesus' burning question, do you love me more than these? These what? Commentators are divided. I take it with D.A. Carson. Do you love me more than these other apostles do? Because remember, before Jesus was arrested, Peter was insisting, I'm going to love you to the death. He kind of put himself up there above everyone else. And now Jesus wants to know, do you really love me more than these do? There's a counterfeit repentance, right? Paul talks about he, he contrasts this in 2 Corinthians 7. He identifies a counterfeit repentance from a true one this way. But the sorrow that's according to the will of God, sorrowing that my sin grieved God, is a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So you can kind of have a weeping and a crying in your tea and being all self-pity, and that isn't going to get you anything spiritually. It's a counterfeit. No, behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow the Corinthians experience has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. So you're dealing honestly with what your sin has done to God, how it breaks his heart. And as Jamie pointed out at the beginning of the service, true repentance is you sense the odiousness. Don't you love that word? Who, who uses words like that anymore? Well, we should. <laughs> the stench of the filthiness, the odiousness of my sin before God. Yeah, it makes me look bad. But are we so close to the heart of Jesus that we, we sense it weeping over our in. Number four, repentance confidently rests on God's mercy. What attribute of God will Peter ultimately fall back on? His omniscience. Lord, you know all things. Translated, I can't hide from you. I can't hide my heart from you. You know me. He's got a really good doctrine of what God knows. God sees the heart. He, that's really clear in this text. He probably read Psalm 139 in his devotions that morning. 
Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. There's nowhere I can hide from you. This ought to create confidence in you that the one who knows you best loves you most. So we have a saying around here. Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you know. You are. God sees it all. He still loves you. He's not leaving you. There's grace for you. The gospel is for sinners. I think we forget this. I know there's a strain in my heart that thinks the gospel is additional help for good folks. That God's going to step in and help me when I get my act together. That once I prove to God I'm a renewal project worth investing in, God's going to give me grace. No, no, no. Let's understand this. <laughs> you are a project that God's never going to stop working on because ultimately it isn't about you. It's about the Father giving his son, brothers and sisters, to enjoy forever. Our salvation is a work in the heavenlies. Jesus agreeing to lay down his life for a people that his father will give them to have as his brothers and sisters forever. Our salvation is about God and what God is doing for himself. He's not going to let you frustrate that plan. Rest in that. Have confidence in that some of us think, well, God's going to wake up one morning and find out, I just give him a reason not to love me. <laughs> Do we think that way? Oh, I'm going to have to give up on you. You keep doing that same prideful thing. No, God will finish what he began in you because he'll finish it for the glory of his son and the delight of his son. Rest in that. Have confidence in that. That'll make you love him more. You know, I think about the self-righteous strain in my own heart. You know, what is that? Is that if you just give me enough time, I could be good enough for you? If I just had enough opportunity, I could dress up for God and be accepted by God by what I do? Let me tell you, the good news is Jesus dressed up for you. Every second of his life, he, 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 he complied with the heart of his father, the will of his father in body, soul, and spirit. He absolutely obeyed his father. And when he went to that hideous cross, he set aside the beautiful robe of his righteousness, took the filthy rags of your sin, he bore the penalty for them in his body, and is only too pleased to clothe you in the beauty of his righteousness, his purity. The gospel is an exchange. You're junk to Jesus. He dies for it. The beauty of his righteousness to you. God the Father sees you as he sees his Son Right now, beautiful, spotless, lovely, beloved, lawful. I must dispense with this foolish notion in my mind that I could do anything good for God. So bring not just your sins to Jesus, but your self-righteousness to Jesus. We are repenting, are we not, of our sins and our self-righteousness. 
Last thing we want to say about repentance. Repentance turns to loving obedience. The Greek word for, this is one of those instances where it's good to know what the Greek word is. You may know it. It's a compound. Metanoia. Change of mind. Not a great word. Repentance is a change of mind. The idea is it's a change of direction. Because the way you think determines what direction your life goes. It's thinking differently about what you love and why you love it. And so repentance turned from yourself to, what's the last word in verse 19? The last two words in 19. Repentance turns from self to, follow me. Follow Jesus. When's the first time Peter heard those words? Three years earlier, maybe on this same part of the coast in Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias, he was fishing and Jesus called him to be his disciple. Follow me. And Jesus promised what in that same sentence? I will make you fishers of men. What did Peter then witness for the next three years? Jesus fishing for men. But I'm going to conflate two ideas here. That the way Jesus fished for men was by seeking lost sheep as the good shepherd. The good shepherd of our souls Jesus sought the lost sheep. He laid down his life for them as the ultimate demonstration of his love. So no wonder he tells Peter, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. The way you fish for men is you love them, you shepherd them, you care for them, you meet their needs, you serve them, you love them the way Jesus loved you. Here's the point. You can't give away what you don't have. It is your experience of Jesus fishing for you, shepherding your soul, giving you grace, pouring his abundant mercy into your life, and you experience that grace, and then you want to give it away. You have not experienced true grace until you want to give it away. Look at Jesus abounding with grace and mercy, and he found you, and he gave it to you. True grace experiences, you want others to come to know Christ. You want to deal with your brothers and sisters in grace. You want a parent in grace. You want to love your spouse. You're never going to do it perfectly. You want to do it in grace. So the big thing Jesus puts in the place of our self-interest is loving others as Christ loved us. Notice he says, feed my sheep feed my lambs. You know true repentance when you see people as belonging to Jesus. Your kids belong to Jesus. Your roommate belongs to Jesus. Your brothers and sisters in this church, they belong to Jesus. We love what he loves because he loved us. He fished for us. He laid down his life for us. Follow me, love others as I loved you. You, the broken, the destitute, the disenfranchised, those who have no power to pay back God for his grace, just like you, love them. (laughs) 
I think what that means for all of us is you have to take stock of the way people experience you. Do you know how you impact people? Do you know what influence you have on them? How do people experience you? Far be it from me that you would experience me as arrogant, a know-it-all, standoffish, self-righteous, superior, self-absorbed. I want you to experience me as a man who's not only repenting of his sins, but his self-righteousness. Does it sound like an extreme when Paul writes in Galatians 5, in Christ Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. <laughs> I better chew on that. And it's going to be costly. That's the last thing Jesus says to Peter. You're going to basically, he's predicting Peter's martyrdom. He'll be crucified one day for following Jesus. And so that means loving people well is, is a daily kind of crucifixion to my own image of myself that isn't grounded in the gospel. A daily crucifixion of, of, of loving myself instead of loving you. A daily crucifixion so that you might experience the fruit of repentance, receiving grace, mercy, love from the heart of Jesus. Let's pray. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for their love for your word. I thank you for your love for them. I thank you that you've put in them a love for you and for one another. Continue working among us Gospel repentance, issuing in a passion to see others as belonging to Jesus, and then being zealous to feed, to help, to love, to serve, to lay our lives down for one another in the pattern of Jesus, the precious and triumphant shepherd of our souls who fished for us and has made us now trophies of his astounding grace. For his glory we pray. Amen.